You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. We are here uh, today on uh, an, an afternoon that we are awaiting the uh, exiting of the jury in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it's not just in Wisconsin, it's throughout the world, I would say, definitely in North America, but probably throughout the world, that people are waiting for the decision in this case. And this case has really brought, once again, to the fore, uh, the parameters of the self-defense argument to in a case where someone has, has been killed. Uh, so we have with us uh, uh, today, uh, besides myself, there's Rabbi Benjamin Scheiman of the executive director of Hinda Helps, uh, who has been my uh, partner in trying to promote criminal justice reform and ideas in this podcast. We also have someone who has been here on the program before, um, Mr. Bob Goodman, a retired uh, <laughs> a retired uh, public defender uh, in, from Cook County. Um, and Bob, of course, we've done a number of programs here. Thank you again for uh, Mr. Barry Shepard. Uh, Barry uh, has practiced criminal law for 45 years. Uh, he started out in the public defender's office, juvenile court, and he practiced there a short time. And from it was that period that he really became got to know uh, Bob. Uh, Barry uh, went into private practice, and he remains one of the leading private practitioners in Chicago, a law firm that uh, he, uh, uh, why don't you start and, and talk about uh, the Rittenhouse trial, some of your observations and points about that. Thank you, uh, Rabbi. I'm Bob Goodman, and I have been watching the Kyle Rittenhouse case because some of it has been on TV, especially the part where uh, he was testifying, and I've been reading up on the case, and it has gained national attention even international attention, and it really uh, involves the concept of self-defense and whether it applies in his particular case. To summarize briefly uh, what that case was about, for those who don't know, in the summer of 2020, Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old boy who lived in the town of Antioch, Illinois. On the fateful day of August 25th, he traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, in order to protect property from those who were rioting and looting and starting fires. The looters were doing such because they believed that there was an unjust shooting of a person named Jacob Blake, an African-American, by police officers that summer. Kyle drove to Kenosha and brought along with him a friend and an AR-15 assault rifle containing 30 rounds of ammunition that the friend had bought for him because Kyle was too young to purchase the rifle himself. In addition, Kyle carried first aid equipment to help those in need, and he claimed expertise in firefighting because he took a course with the Illinois Fire Department. Kyle asserted that a property owner of a local car dealership in Kenosha asked for his assistance in protecting the owner's property. And Kyle went there to do just that. 
In fact, Kyle, armed with his AR-15 assault rifle, stood by this piece of property and protected it. However, there was nothing to do because the rioters and the looters were actually several blocks away. Kyle's friend Dylan called him by phone at some point that night and told Kyle to come over to where the rioting uh, was going on because help was needed there. Kyle took his AR-15 assault rifle, his first aid equipment, and a fire extinguisher to where the action was. By the end of the night, Kyle had shot and killed two people, wounded a third, and fired numerous shots at other people. He was charged with intentional homicide and attempted intentional homicide, which in Illinois and most other places was the equivalent of murder and attempt murder. He pled not guilty and he claimed self-defense. Kyle Rittenhouse testified at his trial and he stated that he was attacked by numerous people. He feared for his life and that is why he fired his weapon. According to Kyle, his use of deadly force was justified, but if convicted of the most serious charges, Rittenhouse faced life imprisonment. I'm not going to comment specifically about whether Kyle Rittenhouse had a good self-defense claim because the trial is going on now and the jury is deliberating and they are going to decide that issue um, and they are the ones in the best position to have heard all the relevant evidence and testimony. Rather, Barry Shepard and I will talk about self-defense as a legal concept, along with particular examples and cases and issues that surround it. Barry and I both have expertise in self-defense cases in Illinois, and the Kyle Rittenhouse case took place in Wisconsin. However, it is clear to me that the issues of self-defense transcend borders and states, and what we say will generally be applicable everywhere. Now, <clears throat> self-defense is defined by statute in Illinois as a person is justified in the use of force against another when he reasonably believes that it is necessary to defend himself against such others' imminent use of unlawful force. In other words, if a person comes up and hits you, you can defend yourself and hit him back. However, if that person hits you and runs away, you cannot legally chase him and beat him up because by running away, he no longer poses an imminent danger to you. Instead, the option is file a police report. Further, a person cannot use deadly force against another unless he reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent great bodily harm or death to himself. In other words, if a person comes up to you and slaps you in the face, you cannot pull out a gun and shoot him. The force you use must be proportional to the danger you face. On the other hand, 
if a person breaks into your home and you reasonably believe that your life is in danger, you can use deadly force to protect it. Finally, self-defense is not available to one who is the initial aggressor, the one who provokes the use of force against himself. In other words, if you start a fight and beat someone with your fists, and that person takes out a knife to defend himself and approaches you with it, you cannot take out a gun to shoot him, even if you're in fear of your life, because you were the initial aggressor and you were the one to provoke the violence. You should instead run away or find some way to de-escalate the situation. Those are some general concepts about the use of self-defense in criminal law. And now, Barry, I know that you would also wish to comment. The concepts in our criminal law revolves around the inherent notions of fairness and, and equities. And a lot of what Bob recited is, is common sense. And uh, particularly as it applies to the Rittenhouse case, uh, there were a lot of issues. Uh, the prosecutor was uh, going on a bit about the fact that Rittenhouse was the initial aggressor. In other words, he brought the firearm to the scene and uh, he, he was not called upon to uh, to bring a firearm to the scene. In fact, he was too young to even carry a firearm. So the question then becomes, if he uh, was in fear of uh, self-defense, and as defense lawyers, we we are trying to exculpate our clients from the jaws of the beast and to keep them from going to prison. So we're not always seeking fairness. We seek uh, relief. So with, with that said, uh, Rittenhouse has got his hands full, I think, in getting uh, an exoneration. Uh, but uh, as Bob also said, the jury's in the process of deliberating. They heard all the evidence and all the witnesses, including the one young man who said he got shot in the hand. And uh, well, there was some confrontation between Rittenhouse and the decedents. Uh, it doesn't seem as though there was um, much actual threat of uh, the decedents uh, exerting uh, deadly force against Rittenhouse. Uh, so without the realistic possibility that you're facing deadly force, you're not allowed to use deadly force. But Rittenhouse clearly used deadly force. Hey, there were many, many shots fired by that, that automatic firearm, uh, which is a weapon of war, and uh, somehow found its hands and found its way into the hands of a, a young person. Uh, with that said, uh, we, as criminal defense lawyers, in the line of fire uh, are often confronted with uh, cases where there's various degrees of force threatened against our clients. Uh, the client responds sometimes commensurately, sometimes in, in, in the midst of passion uh, too much. So I just finished a case uh, recently where the client um, stabbed a person to death uh, and uh, the client was exonerated uh, based on a commensurate use of force, even though the other person was was a lot larger and uh, and and was funny. That person initiated the, the fight. So with uh, 
With that said, we we have another case pending when someone was in the middle of a dice game and there was allegations of cheating and our, our client pulled out a firearm and, and shot somebody. And uh, uh, that that's a tougher road because it, the, the person wasn't armed. So with, with that said, there's a, a, a whole variety of cases uh, that, that we've had throughout the years. Uh, the old saying, uh, don't bring a gun to a knife fight uh, applies. So if it's a fist fight and, and you hit someone and you kill them, that's commensurate. Uh, it's up to the um, the defendant who's facing the charge to introduce evidence. Uh, and the burden is a preponderance of the evidence burden uh, The to, to introduce evidence so, uh, of self-defense. And the state then has to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, with that said, uh, the there's a couple of ways you can get acquitted uh, in, using self-defense. One of which is um, if the passion and uh, provocation is, is induced by the other person, uh, uh, that that's important, providing uh, that you, you weren't the initial aggressor. So all these concepts are rather fluid. The, uh, the, then there's uh, the issue of second degree murder is, is interesting as it applies to particularly the Rittenhouse case, because if you have a misplaced understanding that uh, your actions were required to defend yourself, you can still be found not guilty of, of homicide, but you could be found then if the defense requests it, uh, with request the instruction that is the jury instruction, you can be found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. That's murder too. That uh, allows the defendant to uh, escape the harsh uh, penalties on homicide. And in Illinois, there's no good time on homicide cases. You have to do every single day of your sentence. Uh, whereas in second murder two, used to be called murder two, it's second degree now, uh, that then you get uh, day for day credit. So it's it's a lot more beneficial to, to be found guilty of second degree murder. So Rittenhouse, if the law is the same in Wittenhouse, Rittenhouse were to be found guilty only of second degree murder, he'd face a much lesser actual period of time in prison. Barry? The other thing about, uh, one is to, to get that, if you have a misplaced thinking that your your force is commensurate, but the jury determines that you're wrong and it was excessive, you can get murder too, or, or voluntary manslaughter. Or if the passion provocation was induced by the decedent uh, and you overreacted, that would also be, uh, you could get an instruction and hopefully get uh, acquitted of intentional homicide, but found guilty of the lesser offense of murder too. Barry, um, you said uh, earlier in in your presentation that it's pretty hard to win a case when one person has a gun and the other person is unarmed. I would just like to give you an example uh, at this point where actually uh, I was able to do that. I, I claimed self-defense in a murder case uh, several years ago, and the defendant who was my client, he got into a fist fight with someone at a bar, and the, the fight was kind of inconclusive, and the defendant left the bar. The other person in the fight followed my client outside, and seeing this, uh, the defendant ran away, and the other person ran after him. At some point during the chase, the defendant 
stopped running, pulled the gun out, turned and shot and killed the person chasing him. And the person, the deceased, he was unarmed. However, at the trial, I did allege self-defense and I pointed out that the deceased was a lot bigger than my client, that my client was running and trying to get away from the other person, that my client at that point was clearly not the aggressor and that the defendant feared for his life, finding not guilty. And the most important fact was that my client was running away from the other and he reasonably thought he would receive great bodily harm or death if the other person caught up with him. So you can, that is an example, a true life example, where a person used deadly force, a gun against someone who was unarmed, and yet it was good enough to hold up uh, as self-defense. Well, size and strength disparity is a key issue and the means of escape. If you're running toward a, a corner of an alley and you can't escape, you're cornered. So you evidently did a great job for your client. And uh... a couple of points here. I think both of you seem to be somewhat hesitant uh, to comment about whether you thought Rittenhouse should be innocent uh, and found innocent uh, based on the testimony that you saw and things that that, that you that were aware. Do, do you think that you know, it's, I know a, a sitting judge would have a problem uh, discussing a case and could be possibly uh, sanctioned or disbarred for this. But do you think it's unethical uh, to comment? I know Barry is still practicing. Bob is retired. Is it unethical for people like yourself to comment in this public forum like we're having here about this? In, in my opinion, um, Rabbi, it's completely ethical for us to talk about it, Barry and me or anybody else, whether they have expertise or not. The, the idea is that the judge needs to shield to the degree he feels necessary, the jury from outside information. As long as they're insulated and don't hear uh, the publicity uh, surrounding it uh, while the trial is going on, it is totally fine to talk about it. And if there was a lot of media talk about uh, the case before the trial went on, then during voir dire of questioning the jurors when they were likely to sit as a juror, it's for the judge again to make sure with the help of the prosecutor and defense attorney that they are going to be fair despite everything they may have heard about it. Well, again, it seems just sitting here, of course, I wasn't there and I didn't see the televised proceedings about how the jury was selected, but it would seem uh, the Rittenhouse trial with the type of fame, it's it's almost like the Derek Chauvin trial. It seems to be almost impossible to be shielded from it. But I, 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 let me ask uh, Barry, uh, Barry, you saw that you've argued in front of judges and you saw enough of the of the proceedings. How do you think that judge handled it? I know he was uh, in some quarters, he was criticized for things that he said and things that he did. How do you think that judge was handling the case? Well, <laughs> he was helpful to the defendant, that's for sure. So uh, we don't get that too often. But he was now uh, politically, uh, it's, it's an unusual case. Usually the, the political, uh, the, the left wing is very compassionate toward a defendant, typically. Uh, 
I'm a proud liberal. So in, in terms of uh, my inclination for any criminal defendant who's going to get locked up is to for the judge to be as hopeful as possible uh, and, and, and then reluctantly, if there's a finding of guilty, imprison somebody because it's such a, uh, a restriction, such a harsh remedy to deprive one of freedom. On the other hand, in this particular case, the I think the knee-jerk left-wing reaction is against Rittenhouse. And uh, it, it is uh, that those that were protesting have a First Amendment right to protest, and the Jacob Blake shooting was uh, seemed to be an example of police misconduct. So oh, just based on what we've seen on the films and the like. So... But, but those it creates it was, it was more than protest. We, it was again, there was looting, there was rioting. There's yeah. Rittenhouse didn't make it up that that the fellow at the car dealership was afraid that his 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 buildings and, and automobiles would be smashed and destroyed. It was going on in Kenosha. So it, however, it, Rabbi, the fact is he protected the place that asked him to protect it, and then there wasn't enough action for him, <laughs> so it seemed. So he deliberately put himself in a position that he was going to have to be confronted or confront the looters and rioters. And he was carrying an AR-15 and he knew that there was he was walking into danger. He is not a police officer. That's not his job in real life. And so there is a good argument that he is the one that provoked violence against himself. So you actually... In response, in response to your initial question about the trial judge, uh, it's very odd that a trial judge will be helpful to a defendant. Uh, and it's my experience that's the opposite, usually. So in, in this case, the trial judge was helpful to the defendant. He, uh, he berated the prosecutor, uh, it was we we live for those kind of judges. We don't get them too often, quite honestly. And uh, so, and with, with that said, I, I you know I wasn't in the courtroom for the entirety of it. It may be that the prosecutor violated an express direction of the trial judge, in which case trial judges then sometimes do become upset. So I uh, agree with Barry. It's completely been my experience, as he says, that we're usually on the losing end of who the judge seems to favor. And everybody will tell you that if the jury gets a sense of which side the judge is on, that would greatly influence them because they believe that the judge is the one that they're looking at and toward for guidance. And if it's clear that the judge doesn't like one side, the jury picks up on that. And, and that is not a good thing for the side that he's picking on. You know, I, I only heard snippets of the, the judge reprimand the prosecutor. It was because the prosecutor brought in uh, some sort of interview that Rittenhouse had done a couple of weeks earlier where he didn't have a gun in his hand. And he talked about how he would like to shoot these people that were uh, doing the, the rioting and looting. And the judge had said that he was going to take it under advisement, that he wasn't that he wasn't ready to let the jury hear that. And somehow the prosecutor let that slip in. And that was something that he took a lot of uh, umbrance against. I, I got this sense also from both of you. For him, he went out looking for trouble. And when the trouble came his way, 
to me, he used that as an excuse to nonstop firing his weapon at people. And at least, you know, like we said earlier, Barry and I both said, if you're the jury, you heard all of the relevant evidence and testimony. So all the people who are talking about it in the media, or like we are doing it now, we didn't hear all of it. And it's actually pretty unfair to comment which side was right. Was the self-defense uh, claim a good one or not, unless you're in that courtroom hearing every piece of evidence? The example is in response to your issue of the scapegoat. Get my heads here. Bob said that uh, you know, that he was sort of looking for trouble and that he was firing. Um, he was attacked by uh, one of the people uh, in the mob, and he was hit in the head with a skateboard. And um, it would seem that that is, even though he had this rifle, a skateboard being swung by someone seems to be deadly force that could have killed him. Um, so it, it seems like it isn't just you know bringing a gun to a knife fight. It's, this is a gun after you've been slashed by the knife. Barry? Okay, so, so the skateboard. In the, in the room, there's the skateboard, I assume. And the jury will have a right to take it back to the jury room. And they'll have a chance to look at the skateboard. There's a demonstrative <coughs> evidence opportunity. Show us what happened with the skateboard. Uh, and they can look at the skateboard. They, and they have a chance. If it's a little tiny skateboard that, that can't hurt anybody so badly, it's not so bad. But if it's a, uh, a large slab of wood that can really knock somebody unconscious, maybe it is the type of item that can cause deadly force. It's a great question that you asked. And it can possibly uh, form the basis for uh, deadly force and, and self-defense. So I don't know if he was hit in the head with the skateboard. I don't think he was. But uh, I think it was the back. I think it was hit in the neck. I think so. I don't know if it was the actual. Okay, skull. so I don't think. And now, had the person been cracked in the skull with a skateboard, and in an extreme example, he's bleeding from that, and then the guy continues onward. These are all. It's all in the factual minutia of a case, and it's amazing how the little things like that change how the trier effect views the case. Uh, it could sound like a bunch of uh, baloney about the skateboard, or it could sound like the kid was really afraid of being pummeled with the skateboard. And, and unless you're really sitting in, in the room watching the defendant talk about it, it's hard to really get an exact feel. We can only speculate. But yes, you're right. It can form the basis for a good self-defense. It's I think possible. There, again, I didn't see the televised proceedings, but I know that a, a good portion of the trial uh, is banking on video evidence that was taken from that night so and i so i think it's a little bit different than but what you and bob have been talking about because the jury can actually see of course movies can lie film can lie but they can definitely form a pretty interest a pretty solid perception of the veracity of his statements when they're when they're when they are seeing what it was occurring uh on, on the video and that i think is something that uh uh, very different, and, and and that's the question up since the beginning. We know that the jury is laymen. They aren't people like both of you who went to law school and who have experience. Okay. They're not like Rabbi Scheinman and myself either, who are steeped somewhat in the Talmudic way of thinking and learning 
uh, legal texts constantly and, and thinking about two sides of a subject. These are people who, who work, who are blue collar, who, who aren't necessarily uh, trial junkies. They've been sitting there for hours. They've been lectured by the, by the jury, by, I'm sorry, by the judge. They've heard five hours. I think the closing arguments took five hours. You glaze over afterwards. You still, do you still believe that all that being said, that they are the best people to decide his fate? And let me just lace into that. Bob said they might see what the judge wants. And you have both, we both said about the fact that what does America want? What do the people in the streets want? It seems to be almost impossible for Rittenhouse to, to really get what we would call a dispassioned fair verdict, at least from where I'm looking at it. So either of you can take this, and I have one last question after that. Well, I could start out, I guess, and I would say that you stated that these are laymen, they're not experts. Can he really get a fair trial with these kind of people? And the fact of the matter is the entire basis of law in the United States is that these are the kind of people we want. We don't want the experts to be on the jury. We, we don't want a particular sort of person. You have war dear, you, you, the judge and or the uh, attorneys get to question the layman and they generally try to pick people who they think can be fair. I don't think it's a bad thing that they're not experts. I actually think it's a good thing. And I would also like to say this, a trial is a human experience in which we try to, by the rules of the law, get as close to the truth as we can uh, through cross-examination, through direct testimony, through demonstrative evidence, through all these different ways, through closing arguments. And it's not a perfect system because you're dealing with human beings. That being said, I believe from my experience that that well over 90% of the time, the people who judge these cases get it right and come back with the right verdict. I don't necessarily agree with, with Bob. I, 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 I wish it were true. I believe that uh, the process of jury selection is so inherently flawed. I would almost rather see him pick the first 12 people uh, out of a hat and, and then you might get a smattering of professionals, an engineer, maybe a lawyer, not to say the lawyers are great jurors, uh, but what happens is you get a low common denominator with these juries, and, uh, and, and I wish I had a, a lot of faith in, in the jury system. I actually wish, that, like Talmudic debate, I wish that the juries could ask us some questions, and after the witness, and be able to turn to the jury and say, if you have any questions, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, yeah, I have a question. I, I don't like the way uh, your client addressed this one issue. And then it would be fascinating debate. You could go on for hours, of course. It's true. And, and maybe get to the closer to the truth. I don't, I, I just finished this long jury trial. Uh, and, and, and honestly, by the end, I had no idea uh, which jurors were even listening anymore. Like you say, glazed over. You know, I, I, I don't know. It was a two week trial. And, uh, and then, yes, I, I gave a long closing argument. And, and by that time, I had a sense that uh, almost all of them had their mind made up. So it's a, it's a very difficult uh, process. It's the only one we have. 
just, just, um, Bob articulated it beautifully. The theory is uh, the clash of the adversaries, and supposedly the truth is to emerge from it. I wish I could say I, I, I've always felt that the right thing has happened. I'd say it happens, but sometimes it doesn't happen. And there's nothing worse than a wrongful conviction. And that is a Shonda. Yeah. The, the other point that I had made was that when you have a case with such a publicity and such import, do you, do you both, again, you know, we're going to try our best, but isn't, even if he's found, even if he's convicted, don't you think there's going to be grounds for Rittenhouse's lawyers to be able to argue on appeal that 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 the trial wasn't fair just because of everything that was like the way he was labeled beforehand uh, a, a trump military nazi or whatever they called him or a you know a racist who came to shoot people and everything like that it, it seems like you know i i don't know if such a thing can be uh developed but maybe when you have certain cases that are so that reach a certain uh publicity apex that there should be different rules about how that person uh, should be should be dealt with by the system he clearly is the situation is so exceptional that the normal rules can't apply because nobody can really be objective again i i, I don't expect you to give me a real answer on this just want to make that point the last point i want to sh- both of you to respond to if you would have been uh approached by rittenhouse uh, and because he is from Antioch, you never know. I don't know if you guys have license to practice in Wisconsin, but if either of you would have been approached to take the case, you might, if you're a public defender, maybe you don't have a choice. But let's say, since you are, let's imagine, Bob, you had been a, a, in private practice and Newberry is still in private practice, and you get a call from the Rittenhouses. Would you be comfortable taking this case? And let's hear from Bob first and then Barry. Well, I, I'd like to address. Uh the first part of your question first, who, who has the advantage in a criminal uh, case? You first, you start out with a presumption of innocence. The judge will instruct himself or the jury. Uh, he doesn't need to instruct himself, obviously, that the defendant's presumed innocent. It's the prosecution that has to uh, convince the trier of fact beyond a reasonable doubt. There in civil law, there's preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not. And in criminal law, is, is you have to really prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And like you said, if there are grounds for error that occurred at the trial, then the defendant gets to appeal. However, the prosecutor can't appeal if there's a finding of not guilt. So again, in some sense, the system is set up to make sure that only um, guilty people are are found guilty. I know that uh, Barry is much more cynical on that point than than I am. Because in one sense, let's say you have the police department that are supporting the prosecution. So you have a lot of resources going against you. It could be that a private attorney doesn't have the resources to match the resources of the prosecution, and that could make it uh, a little unfair. As to whether um, I would want the Rittenhouse case, I, I, I would say that if I was a private attorney, that would be a dream case of my career. First <laughs> of all, it's got issues that are not terribly clear for one side or another. It's a great case 
for either side and the amount of publicity that the attorney would get and what would follow after that case if he did a good job uh, is would be the greatest publicity a private attorney could ever have. As far as a public defender, um, if Rittenhouse could not afford an attorney, then the public defender's office would take it and the murder task force that we have set up who are experts only in murder cases would have that case. I was never on the murder task force. Uh, so maybe I did about 10 murder cases in my career, but you have some of the finest uh, attorneys in the country, in the public defender's office, in the murder task force, and they would love to have that kind of case. So in my opinion, and now Barry could speak for himself, that would be the case of a career either as a public defender or as a private attorney. My view is a little bit different uh, because I take on these cases and the, the, it, at its inception, uh, an attorney-client bond is created and sometimes it's never created. And sometimes the person speaks to you in the privacy of your law office and says things that are so repulsive and repugnant that you don't want to sit next to that person. That's possible. Uh, on the other hand, even someone like Rittenhouse, for instance, who, in my view, did something uh, just by bringing that firearm is, was playing with, uh, uh, playing with fire, let's say. Uh, he might be a very nice young man. He could be. And if he's uh, contrite, and if he, is, if he says, I, I wish this didn't happen, it was a series of uh, events, so the perfect storm of bad would happen to me, I might find that sympathetic. Or he, he might, as his lawyer said, uh, which I thought was awful, I'm glad he shot the guy. I heard the lawyer say that. I said, what? The lawyer says he's glad he shot the guy? A lawyer should only handle this. Is, this is a tragic misunderstanding. And uh, here's how it happened. So maybe he got that from the client. Maybe the client is arrogant about all this. So, so that is really the heart and soul of, of whether you want the case or not. Because you have to work with somebody so long and deal with them endlessly. And if you find that person to be somebody you can't sit with, well, regardless of whether it's good for your career or not, uh, you, you, this is your life saga. You know, we go through these cases and uh, a little bit of, of them stays with us here and there. So I know Bob's the same way. He takes his cases extremely seriously. And he was a great public defender. Uh, I take them seriously, too. And uh, there's a lot of factors in it. You're going to give up a lot of your life to take on a case like that. Uh, very rarely is the financial remuneration sufficient. It could be, I suppose they, there are some right-wing groups that bankrolled Rittenhouse, from what I'm told. So uh, uh, the, the answer is not an easy answer. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's really uh, a tough... That from my observations, what I've seen, and I've watched the testimony of Rittenhouse, he's not contrite at all. He doesn't feel any remorse for what he did. He felt like he was defending his life from people that were trying to take it. He may have been right or he may have been wrong, but there's no doubt in his mind from anything I've said that he thinks he did anything wrong or that it was a tragic situation one way or the other. Like Barry said, uh, he just thinks it was all good. It worked out fine. He's alive. The bad people are dead. 
speaking as uh, I don't have anybody that young in my house anymore, but I think we all remember that when kids are, are 17 or 18, nuance is not exactly what they are made of. <laughs> With them, things are generally usually black and white. And I'm not surprised that that Rittenhouse doesn't have the type of nuance to, to feel terrible that a human life was taken through him and at the same time justify what he did. But again, uh, Rabbi Scheinman, uh, I know that you have a point story on this case this week. Since I uh, am a Jew who lives with the Torah and what's going on, we have in this week's Torah portion a couple of cases like this. And uh, we have what did Jacob do facing Esau? Self-defense. He, we know he prepared for. We know he prepared for everything. He definitely did not go to provoke anything. He did everything first. He sent a gift and he prayed. He only left that as the last. So he definitely was not written out. Jacob was not that model. Whereas his sons, a little later in the portion, when their sister was taken and raped, they did go in. Two of the sons went in and they, they, they had all the other people circumcise themselves in this town. And then they went and slaughtered everybody. So what were they? What was that? Was that self-defense? They were a little more provocative than their father. And I think he was upset about that. Um, and so I, I thought that was interesting. In this week's portion, you have those two um, different uh, sides to this issue. And I just visiting men, uh, Jewish men, especially in prison, a lot of men tell me, Rabbi, we come in, there's a lot of people around us who want to take advantage of us. And usually what um, they advise each other is that you know you have to once in a while stand up to a fight you do have to defend yourself even though it means you get thrown into segregation it means that uh you uh, may lose a little bit of uh of your privileges for a while but after that you do the time in a different way so again uh, but i don't think that's the same as the written house case there somebody legitimately feels like he's going to be the underdog and he will be picked on the whole time he has to stand up and he has to defend himself. And usually the cases of prison, though, is not taking a life. But in the portion, Levy, Shimon and Levy definitely took a bunch of lives. That was a pretty radical uh, uh, thing that they did over there. And we know Yaakov wasn't uh, very happy about that. So it, that's the way I see this case through the Torah. And, uh, you know, with, with some of the people that I have to deal with, when, Rabbi, what should we do? Should we just get let ourselves beat up? Or should we stand up and should we fight for ourselves? Rabbi, uh, I, I'd just like to comment on that and then Barry can. In the lockup, in the uh, penitentiary where you have prisoners, there's no criminal justice system. There's no law to be followed. There is only survival of the fittest. And you could survive in different ways. By One way is to just anybody who takes you on you try to beat them up and be the physical superior person. The other way is through manipulation and staying out of the fight. Whatever way that you can survive in prison, in Cook County Jail, in a lockup, you do whatever it takes. And the consequences that follow are nothing that you um, uh, can, can worry about. As for Jacob and his sons and Dina, that seemed to me, and I'm not saying it's... Of course, the survival of the fittest. These prisoners are very fortunate to have somebody like Rabbi Scheiman and his son go visit them and provide them with counseling and spiritual sustenance. Uh, 
He is uh, performing a very valuable function and one in which uh, our society uh, sees too, too little of. And so I, I hope, Rabbi, your listeners understand the, the uh, selflessness that Rabbi Scheinman uh, exhibits on a daily basis. It's a wonderful thing. And I am not. If we, we just sum this thing up, Rittenhouse might have thought that in the spirit, in, in, in a period where rioting is going on, it's almost like a, a sense of lawlessness. I know, Barry, you said you're a liberal. Whatever your feelings is, when property is being damaged, when things are being looted, then the cause, whether whatever the, how great the cause is, but when you see an effect of, 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 of terror and you see that things are just being smashed and thrown around, I think you do have almost this, this, this unreal surrealistic situation where responses are different. And I think that's really the same thing in a prison yard. In a prison yard, you look a guy the wrong way, that might be an insult that, that deserves a shiv in, your, in, the side of your, uh, in, in the side of your chest. So, you know, it, it, there, I think there is some commonality to what Rabbi Scheinman is saying to what we, we've been discussing. Now, it's possible that Rittenhouse's perceptions are all his own fantasy. But as you said, Barry, if the person perceives that, if that's what he really believes, then we need to take his actions differently, the same way we would take Wrong, his- wrong, Rabbi, because it's not how he perceives it. It's how a reasonable person under those circumstances would perceive it. We don't care if Rittenhouse said uh, that he felt uh, in, in fear of his life. What we care about is what would a person in those circumstances feel. He was exacting vigilante justice. There are police officers. There's the law. There's the National Guard. There are people whose job it is to make sure that property and lives are protected. That was not the case with Rittenhouse. He had no authority to go out there and do his own thing. And uh, I feel pretty strongly about that. No, no, I, I, Bob. Look, I respect you 100 percent on that. I'm just saying that 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 there is a different mindset in the middle of a riot than there is in the street, uh, walking down the street, or even coming out of a bar. The, and would you approve of your own son getting an AR-15 rifle and going to Kenosha, Wisconsin, looking for trouble? Of course not, Bob. I, I, exactly. I would, of course not. I'm just saying that, that, that when we, the human psyche is always a difficult thing. And the situation that was happening in Kenosha was as abnormal as the situation in a prison yard. A prison yard is not normal human interaction the way we know it, and neither is the midst of a riot. And right that, that, that is true. However, Rittenhouse wasn't thrust into that setting. He went to that setting. He wasn't a security guard. Uh, he wasn't hired to do a job. He, as Bob said, he's not a police officer. Uh, when when uh, those that are, are outsiders come in to inflame the situation, it, it, it only can create a tinderbox. And, and it was sadly un- unfortunate that these two boys got killed. We, we feel for Rittenhouse in a way, but the other two aren't going to be able to say their piece any longer. No, no, I agree. And I'm not making light of the loss of life. All I was doing was trying to create a, a similarity to where we started and to where we're now ending in terms of understanding how difficult it is to be a judge and a jury and to understand what's going on. Uh, right. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, panel, for, for being with us here. Uh, it's possible by the time we upload this, there will be a, uh, a verdict. And, uh, but I think we will uh, definitely gain from having discussed this, this idea as thoroughly as we did. Thank you so much. Be well, everybody. We'll catch you next Thank time. you, Rabbi. Thank you for your provocative comment. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 